All right. Unfortunately, the attractive member of the team is leaving, and you're stuck with me. All right. So as Randy mentioned, we are going to kind of peruse into that time before the universe existed. Augustine is reported to have, been, to have said, someone asked him, you know, what was God doing for creation? He said, well, there's a special spot in hell for those who pose such questions. But being one who asks forgiveness more than permission, here we go. So what we know about Christianity is it is very unique in terms of religions for a number of reasons. One of those is the concept of the Trinity, the idea that we worship a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we recognize them as three persons. So we, we see this not so much in the Old Testament. It's kind of foreshadowed, but in the New Testament, the notion of this triune Godhead is brought out in very unique ways. Probably the first and most distinct image is that of the baptism of Jesus, which we see recorded in all four gospel accounts. We see Jesus comes to visit his uh, cousin John at the River Jordan, and he chooses to be baptized there by him. As Jesus is being baptized, the Father from heaven speaks and says, Behold my beloved Son. And then we see the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove coming down and lighting on Jesus. So now we begin to see, okay, there are three seemingly distinct personages happening here. Then later at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus kind of gives us our marching orders, the marching orders that remain for us today, in which he says, I want you to uh, make disciples, which is what we hope to be doing with Calcinto, baptize in the name, singular, the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, not names, and then teach all that I have commanded. So in those two passages, Jesus in particular helps us begin to unpack this notion of a trinity. And then Paul and Peter and others will pick this up. One of the interesting passages is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you recall, this is where Paul is trying to impress upon the church at Corinth that they, even though they are diverse... They're supposed to be a unified body. So he describes it as being there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord, a reference to Jesus. And there are varieties of activities, but same God or Father who empowers them all in everyone. So we see here again, we see this notion that three of God is somehow involved in this. Paul, when he's writing to the church at Ephesus, is focusing on Jesus as the Lord of the church. And in chapter 4, he's going to give us seven foundational elements that are the basis of our unity as believers in Christ. And he again says here, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. So again, in a couple of passages, we see Father, Son, and Spirit. And then Peter kind of gives us a little more functional approach as he's writing to what he calls the resident aliens in some of the churches that Paul has founded. He says, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification or being set apart in the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, there are a number of other passages in the New Testament that 
point both expressly and implicitly to the notion that God somehow includes Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet you also come from a Jewish tradition which is strongly and fiercely monotheistic. So, the early church, now again, there's nothing in the Old Testament that seems to point as clearly to this as the New does. So the church kind of begins to think about this. Now what's interesting, if you're a follower of church history as I am, is that many of the early confessions or creeds, the Apostles' Creed, for example, is Trinitarian in form, meaning I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, you know, and born, you know, suffers and dies under Pontius Pilate, and I also believe in the Holy Spirit. So these early creedal formulas are developed by the church, and they're always Trinitarian in form, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they're Christocentric in focus, meaning the substance, the basic elements in this, are focused on Jesus. Okay, so right away the church sees this Trinitarian understanding of God, which is very interesting given the fact that it's a Jewish community (laughs) who are fiercely monotheistic. And so the question is, how does this begin to work out? What is our understanding? So uh, church is kind of going along. Now, just as a historical side note, this is how you impress people at your parties. The first guy to ever use the term Trinitas in Latin, which we get Trinity, is a Latin theologian by the name of Tertullian. He, as he's going through his understanding, kind of in the end of the um, third century, well, right around 200 AD, he uses the word Trinitas to describe the idea that Father, Son, and Spirit are three separate persons, yet are simply one God. And so the church is going to take this idea and they're going to begin to unpack this as they think through it. But then the other insight, and we'll kind of look at that a little more in just a minute. So let's add to the idea that we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they all exist together. And then Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, now he's had the upper room discourse of John 14 through 16, He's closed his public ministry in chapter 12, and now he's focused on his disciples. He wants them to get some in-depth teaching, and he unpacks it. And what's interesting, in 14 through 16, he introduces the Holy Spirit very, very clearly, saying, look, it's good that I go away, because when I go away, this Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to lead you into the truth. He's going to call to remembrance everything that I've taught you. In effect, He is what is referred to as a paraclete. Paraclete in the ancient world meant like your family lawyer. He's your advocate. He's the one on your side. Um, Then after he finishes his teaching, he goes and John records the longest prayer that we have anywhere of Scripture. And it's Jesus praying to the Father because he knows what's in front of him. He knows now that he's had his last supper, so to speak, He's going to go to trial, and he's going to be executed. So he's praying, and that prayer reveals something deep that is fundamental and very important for us to understand in answering the question, what was God doing before the universe existed? So in John 17, 5, he begins by saying, And now, Father, glorify me. And one of the words you can use to that is honor. Think of it as glorify. Sometimes we have a little trouble with glorify, but honor. He says, Honor me or glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
So already we have this idea that there's father and son, and father and son existed together before the universe exists, and that there is apparently honor exchanged between the two of them. So now we're beginning to get a little further hints as to who God is and what he was doing before any of this was even conceived. He goes further. My favorite passage in John 17, 24, he says, Father, he's praying further. Now he's thinking of his disciples. He says, I desire that they also whom you've given to me, he's probably thinking especially of the 12 and perhaps others that God has directed toward him. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So before the universe exists, father and son exist, and they exist in apparently a loving, honoring relationship. In other words, they are persons. We understand what it means to love and honor. We, it, it's something that resonates deeply within it. It goes to the core of our being. It is fundamental to our nature and to our character. So what we discover is that God is a relational being engaged in loving, honoring relationships, and thus we see personhood and the notion of a communion of persons. In other words, father and son have always been father and son from eternity. Well, that's really interesting. So now imagine you're the early church and you're looking at the baptisms, you're looking at the passages through Scripture, and you're looking at this prayer in particular because it's deeply influential for a lot of the early church fathers, kind of unpacking who God is, what his character, what his nature is. So if you recall, the early church kind of develops in a Roman culture and, and the church as a Christian church, is technically under Rome what's called a religio elicta. In other words, it doesn't have authorization from the Roman authorities to exist. The Jewish community did because it was a very ancient religion, and they loved things old. We love things new. In the ancient world, they love old things because they thought, ah, those are the things that have showed you know, the test of time. So the church initially doesn't have, doesn't have the ability to really meet together and discuss this, but the church is already kind of worshiping Jesus. They're meeting on Sundays. They're doing lots of things that we do now, and they're doing this all pretty much directed by the Holy Spirit. So within the church, it's going to take some time. Now, in the church, there are what are called councils that happen in the opening centuries, um, and these are kind of important. Um, in other words, most of us, if we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus as being one person with two natures. In other words, he's fully human and fully God, yet he's simply one person. He's not two people. He's not parts. He's not 50-50 God and human. He's 100% God and 100% man. And this is developed at the early councils, particularly the Council of Nicaea in 325. And in Nicaea, the church fathers get together over 300 of them come from the Latin-speaking West and the Greek-speaking East, and they come together to figure this out. You know, I think today of 35,000-plus denominations, we, we can't agree on much, and yet these guys are meeting together and discussing the most fundamental core elements of our beliefs of who is God and why did he have to do what he did. So anyway, over the next couple of hundred years, it goes from Nicaea 
to our council in Constantinople in 381, and Ephesus in 431, and finally we get what's called the definition of Chalcedon in 451. And the church now understands that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. That's really, and the reason they're doing this is they want to protect your salvation, your redemption. In other words, God chooses to become fully human so that he can rescue 100% of us. You know, when I teach, like out at the mission, ask the guys, is there any part of you you don't think needs to be redeemed? And they go, nope, I want all of me. <laughs> I want body, I want soul, I want mind, the whole bit. So God has to do that. So it's not like these are just abstract questions. They're thinking God's rescued us from sin and death. How does that work? So that's a part of it. But as you go through all of these councils, I mean, posted on my fridge, I have the, what's called the Niceo Constantinopolitan Creed because it's just the most basic elements of my faith. And they reduce it again to a Trinitarian format, Father, Son, and Spirit, with a Christocentric basis. In other words, my focus is Christ. Why? Because in John 14, 9, when he's asked by Philip, could you show us the Father? What does he say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus helps me unpack who God is, but Jesus helps me now unpack who the Trinity is, and that becomes even more important when we begin to think about that. So the church develops this idea of Trinity. So now you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? What, why does that matter? So let's do two comparisons. First off, we live in a culture in which many people are what we call metaphysical or philosophically they're materialists. They believe the whole world is nothing but matter. Say you look at the Big Bang. The Big Bang just simply happened because there's forces in physics and chemistry, and that's how come the universe exists. But the last I checked, neither molecules nor subatomic particles nor gravity nor the strong or weak nuclear force possess any personhood. In other words, if the universe was purely material, where in the world do we get our ideas of love and significance and meaning? I mean, after all, chemistry is just chemistry. It, it does what it does. It's not like little molecules get together, hey, buddy, let's share some electrons. We're going we're gonna to change matter around. We're going to do this. No, those are just mechanisms. They're things that function on their own. So a material picture of reality really doesn't unpack who we are as human beings. In other words, for example, I'm a, right now I, I work as a naturalist tour guide. So, you know, you explain things like acid rain. Well, acid rain, as long as there's been rain, there's acid rain. Every time H2O falls through the atmosphere and hits a molecule of CO2, carbon dioxide, it turns into carbonic acid. Carbonic acid dissolves rocks. Dissolving rocks is how you get dirt, <laughs> right? So if you live in the Midwest or in places where you get a lot of rain, you get a lot of dirt. You live in a desert, you don't get a lot of dirt. You get a lot of sand from what we call just kind of weathering and material processes. But that's just, carbonic acid's just a mechanism. <laughs> it doesn't, it's all thinking, oh boy, I can't wait to melt some rocks. It, it just does it. Okay, so materialism, I think for most of us here, eh, that's an inadequate answer. It fails on a number of levels. But then let's also think, Let's imagine for a moment there's just one God. Say you have Allah, not to pick on Islam, but in Islam, Allah is kind of an Arabic 
equivalent of Elohim, our concept of God the creator. If you just have one God, <clears throat> where do relationships come from? Where does love come from? Where do all the things that we think mean so much to us come from? In other words, if this one God loved, who or what would that one God love? He only has him or her or itself. So that would mean that in creation, if this God wants to put love into the creation, the only sort of love he can put is self-love. Well, most of us are quite good at that, but we don't think of it as the best form of love, do we? I mean, self-love... So again, it's the idea that whatever is the cause can only put what they have into the creation. I can't put any more into something. I can't put something into a creation that I do not possess. But if you have a father, a son, and a spirit involved in a loving, engaging, personal communion in which love and honor are exchanged, now I have a foundation for personhood. I have a foundation for communication. I have a foundation for love that exists before the universe does. So now this is able to put it into the universe itself. So once you kind of go to that and say, okay, well, let's kind of think about what, what this love is. Now, most of us, having been in church for a while, we're all familiar with a couple of the terms for love. I'm going to add a new one to that because that's what I do. I just like to annoy people. <laughs> so one of the key Greek words for love is that of storge, probably one that you're not familiar with in terms of Monday or Sunday mornings, but it's one that we're all intimately familiar with. Storge is the love that exists within family, particularly of a mother for the child. Think of that. Mother actually nurtures life within her, gives life to these children. There is a unique bond and love that's expressed through storge, and it's other-directed. It isn't self-love the mother has for herself. It's the love that she has for the child, and in turn, ultimately, the child for the parent, and that would go on even among siblings. Then you have phileo. We're most familiar with that. That's love, brotherly love. In other words, that's a love of friends. You may not be able to choose your family, but you do choose your friends, and friendship, the bonds of friendship can last a lifetime. But again, they're other-directed. You are sharing things in common with someone else, someone who is not a part of your family. It's yet another person. And so now we're beginning to see, okay, love's getting a bit bigger, and then we think of the agapao or agape love. It is the notion that we find in passages like Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, in other words, while we were angry with him or in enmity with him, he demonstrates his love for us by sending his son. So now we're beginning to see the love that the father had for the son is one, it's a choice. It isn't simply a feeling. It'd be great if God up there, gosh, I love you guys so much, group hug, but you know, you're on your own. That feeling would do us no good. But the fact that he makes a choice, that Jesus and he agree that that's the choice to make, that Jesus then willingly comes here to demonstrate love. So now love is not merely a feeling, but it is an action. It is a choice. Because what God shows us is love. He demonstrates his love for us. It's not something that he keeps hidden. He reveals it. So now I have a triune God in which they love, 
communicate, honor one another. And now I have a foundation for understanding maybe those deep longings I have within me, not only to be loved by someone, to be genuinely cared for, but to express that toward others as well. So when you look at these passages, you know, glorify me the way we did before the world existed. Now, it's good to know who God is before the universe exists, because now I have a reason for understanding the things that are of the most meaning and significance to me. A material picture of the universe doesn't give me that. A single God really doesn't give me that, but the triune Godhead does. So you think of it like this. Our God, then, is a loving, sharing, communicating, honoring community of persons. This, then, is part of whom he is and can be built into the cosmos. So if we discover relationality, love, and community, and that we desire such because they're desirable, then now I have reasonable grounds to pursue that, to embrace it, because it resonates with who we are. The notion of being a part of a loving community, most people don't reject that. They look for it. We see the culture all around us wanting to embrace it, but having no idea of how really to get there. So now if we go back, and we go back to page one, and back to Genesis in the gospel, so now I understand who God is, now I'm going to look at how he put that into us, so what does he do? He starts in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, a passage we're all familiar with, but let's unpack it a little bit further. Then God said, let us... Obviously, now we understand us, his Father, Son, and Spirit, make man in our image and our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. That last little phrase, male and female, he created them. He didn't, a triune God, a community of beings who engages in loving relationships from eternity to eternity, has no intention of creating isolated individuals. If he is the best being in the universe, and I would suggest that he is, then he is going to want the best for his image, whom he creates. He is going to want them to have a foundation for experiencing who he is and what it means best to reflect that image in his creation. So he creates gender, which is a whole topic for another morning perhaps, but it's the idea that he makes them. Actually, the Hebrew word, when it kind of goes, it follows the next passage we'll look at in Genesis 2.18. So remember, the first seven days... Every day, it's good, 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 good. And on the seventh day, not only is it good, it's very good. Then we have the one part in creation that God says is not good. And what is that? Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. We were not made to be solo, standalone projects. We were made to connect. We were made to commune with each other. We were made to commune with God. It seems so simple to us, but if you don't have a foundation for it, that that means that God, when he creates, would have to invent love. He'd have to invent a community, but he doesn't have to because that's who he is. 
He's already this ideal communion of persons. So, the idea that he makes man in his image, and male and female who created them, it is not good. Remember, God has Adam sit down and name all of the animals. So you can imagine the parade that goes on. And here's Adam, in effect, doing what God made us to do. He's exercising dominion over creation. In the ancient Near East, if you named someone, it meant you had authority over them. You were in the ability to give it a name, which wasn't merely a designation like Mike or the Hiker, but it's actually, it went to your character. So, for example, when Abram's name, Abram means exalted father, when he becomes Abraham, it's father of a multitude. His encounter with God transformed his nature, and therefore he becomes now a father of a multitude because of the contact with God. Same thing is true when you look at Jacob. Jacob is the one who grabs the heel. Jacob becomes Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. Why? Because he wrestled with God. So in having Abraham, or having Adam rather name the animals, he is beginning to do what God already designed us to do, exercise dominion over creation. And if you read that carefully, you realize it never gave us authority to have dominion over the image of God. <laughs> As Gideon mentioned in his passage when they wanted to make him king, he says, oh, God alone is king. Human kings have a tendency to mess things up. But again, that's just a little thought bomb out there. So he exercises his dominion. And after doing that, God says, nah, you know what? Those just didn't cut it. So he makes... Woman from the rib, technically the word for rib is salah. Salah is not so much an anatomical uh, reference like rib. It actually means um, double door or double gate. In other words, Eve is the perfect complement to Adam. They stand as equals in the image of God before God. And that too is important. So we now see that the relationship that Adam and Eve were made for was again this ideal communion of persons that ideally would do so in a loving and honoring relationship in the same fashion as the triune God. So there's, I think, kind of what, what this points to is the notion that God is a person. He's not just a mechanism. For example, in the 18th century, we saw the rise of what are called deists. We would describe ourselves as Christian theist. A theist is someone who simply believes in God. In particular, a Christian theist would be the God of the Bible. Well, there were deists, and they sort of thought of God as this distant kind of, you know, watchmaker who put the universe together, spun it into motion, and then took off and left it to run on its own. But that really doesn't suggest the notion of personhood, of agency, of someone who's engaged with another. Uh, Gerald Bray, uh, he's a historical theologian, says this about personhood. He says, in the end, the best way to think of personhood is to say that being a person means having the capacity to give and receive love. The persons of the Godhead love each other fully and completely. As human beings, we are persons because we have been made for love, love of God in the first instance, but also of love of one another and ourselves. So again, because God is a triune God, he builds that into it. The other options just don't have it. I have no foundation for that. Now, this notion that he is this communion of persons, 
is a wonderful word in Greek called perichoresis. Now, what perichoresis means, it's kind of like a, uh, the technical terms would be like mutual coherence or mutual interdependence. But here's Alistair McGrath. I think he unpacks it quite well when he says, this is what we mean by that word which describes this communion of persons. It allows the individual, individuality of the persons to be maintained. In other words, the Father speaks to his Son. The Holy Spirit defends their each separate persons. As Peter describes, God does his job, the Son does his, the Spirit does his. They're unified, but they're unique. So, it allows the individuality, individuality of persons to be maintained while insisting that each person shares in the life of the other two. An image often used to express this is the idea of community of being in which each person, while maintaining its distinctive identity, penetrates the others and is penetrated by them. We might think of the closest thing to that is Paul when he's writing in Ephesians and he's kind of going on further after he's given us the foundations for unity within the church. He talks about the mutual submission that should exist within the church, that there is no one that's above the other. Again, he didn't put us in authority over the other images of God, not to rule over them anyway, and that's why you know, I enjoy so much being an elder here. We work in a very collegial fashion between pastors and elders. And it works quite well because I think it models the ultimate reality. So in other words, <clears throat> we see that we're now persons. And that we're persons, as Bray says, capable of giving and receiving love. There's nothing to me that matters more than that, particularly in this culture here and now. Um, the idea of a, of a triune God who, who is who he is, and builds that into us as his image, makes possible the loving relationships that I think resonate so deeply with people. And Jesus said, look, if you guys love one another as my disciples, people are going to recognize that God actually sent me. Why? Because you are little tiny pictures of divinity. You are God. And when God loves, because God just loves, and when we kind of get it into that practice of making that choice, of being other-directed, then we begin to reflect that. We begin to become, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians, we are that letter that's read in public, that God is real and that God is love. So Jesus' prayer for us in John 17 is that we would see this, that we would understand this is fundamental, that <laughs> oddly enough, the ultimate reality, the thing that will came before the universe and will outlast the universe are three loving persons. So ultimate reality is three loving persons. I don't know about you, but that makes me really hopeful. <laughs> so I look at the world sometimes, I think, ooh, this place is, we go and you know we're in a handbasket, but ultimate reality is love that's not going to let that happen. So Asking the question, what happened before the universe existed, points us to a triune God, and it begins to matter immensely. And John gets this in his first letter. And I like John, because John is just simple. He, in simple language, he expresses deeply profound ideas. 
So he says in 1 John 4, starting in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. We didn't invent it. We didn't make it up. It is gifted to us. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. He can say that because we understand that's who God truly is. God is love. In this, the love of God is made manifest among us. Again, what? It's a choice. It's an action. It's not simply a feeling. The love of God was made manifest that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So, the notions that we can love one another, which clearly we're commanded to do. The first great command, do what? Love God. Second great command, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is what he desires of us because he is the best thing in the universe. He is the greatest and ultimate source of goodness and love. So God makes it possible for us to participate and experience what it means to be his image, to be a community of being, particularly within his church where we are a community of persons bound together by what? If you go through the New Testament, you'll discover there are over 50 one another's. Love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, teach one another, admonish one another again and again. What does that reflect? It reflects that each of us are gifted, that the very unity and diversity within the Godhead, the fact that there are three persons, but they are one in purpose, they are one in their focus, should be true of us as well. When we do that, we reflect who he is, and we become the best expression. Now think of it. We live in a culture. Um, There's a new book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in it, Truman who's a Christian thinker, does an outstanding job of kind of going through the, kind of the intellectual history of the past couple hundred years in the West and given rise to what um, probably, I guess, the social critics call expressive individualism. Now, when I say that, you're going to understand what, how, what that means. Expressive individualism is the idea that each of us is supposed to live out our inner feelings and because that's going to produce happiness, because now I'm being my authentic self. But it does this in isolation from any others. It does it premised on my feelings, which, I mean, if I have an anchovy pizza, I feel much different than other times. Your feelings come and go. I mean, there's nothing wrong with feelings associated with love, but if I let my love be premised on my feelings, it'd be a disaster, which most of our culture looks like. Expressive individualism says everything that I find meaning and significance is found solely in here. But John just said, love is from God. I didn't make it. I didn't invent it. He did it. He's the ultimate reality. He sets the pattern. When we focus completely on ourselves and on our feelings, when we function like this, and much of our culture does, you just look at the language, the stories that people tell these days, People like the idea of love, but they're not quite sure, divorced from God, how you get it or where it comes from. 
But from a biblical perspective, when I recognize the depth of who God is, and that's, people ask me about my faith in Jesus, I say, well, I have a Trinitarian faith, which is kind of usually, they have no idea what that means, but kind of gives you an opportunity to explain what that is. People ask me if I'm a Christian, I go, no, but I am a disciple of Jesus because a disciple is the one who learns and he's my teacher. Just ways to, again, I have the gift of annoyance, so I like to prolong conversations. But what we discover is that who he is makes it possible for us to express love in a tangible fashion toward him, toward those whom we love, and in that most frustrating of passages, even toward our enemies. You kind of wish, I'm like C.S. Lewis, I really wish he hadn't included that, but he did. And that means even those that frustrate me and kind of drive me crazy, it means I still have to be loving toward them. It still has to be a choice and an action on my part, which is kind of good because my feelings towards them are not always warm and fuzzy, but, I have, but it does inform me of the choice I'm compelled to make if I claim to be his disciple. So what we understand is that we were made to glorify God because we're made in his image. He has empowered us through the presence of his spirit, through the knowledge and wisdom he provides through his word to do everything he has called us to do. So when he tells us to love God and love others, it's built right into the very fabric of who we are from the ultimate reality of the cosmos. And that, to me, again, is deeply encouraging because in a world that does not offer me a great deal of of hope, and one that sometimes it looks as though everything has gone askew. I know who sits on the throne. I know who they are in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And he really means it when he says he loves the entire world, even those whom we're not always so fond of. So, hopefully, that gives you a bit of an insight into what was going on before the cosmos came into existence that you have a completely solid foundation for those things you most deeply long for, a sense of belonging and of connecting with others. Hopefully, that should offer you an encouraging word this morning. So, we'll have one more song, one which I chose. They didn't chose the really wild rock and roll one, but I think you'll enjoy the lyrics of this one, which seems apropos of the message. (laughs) 